Section 18 of Elia and the Last Essays of Elia. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Arden. Elia and the Last Essays of Elia by Charles Lamb. Grace Before Meat. The custom of saying grace at meals had probably its origin in the early times of the world, in the hunter state of man, when dinners were precarious things, and a full meal was something more than a common blessing, when a bellyful was a windfall and looked like a special providence. And the shouts and triumphal songs with which, after a season of sharp abstinence, a lucky booty of deer's or goat's flesh would naturally be ushered home, existed perhaps the germ of the modern grace. It is not otherwise easy to be understood why the blessing of food, the act of eating, should have had a particular expression of thanksgiving annexed to it, distinct from that implied and silent gratitude with which we are expected to enter upon the enjoyment of the many other various gifts and good things of existence. I own that I am disposed to say grace upon twenty other occasions in the course of the day besides my dinner. I want a form for setting out upon a pleasant walk, for a moonlight ramble, for a friendly meeting, or a solved problem. Why have we none for books, those spiritual repasts, a grace before Milton, a grace before Shakespeare, a devotional exercise proper to be said before reading the Fairy Queen. But the received ritual, having prescribed these forms to the solitary ceremony of manducation, I shall confine my observations to the experience which I have had of the grace properly so called, commending my new scheme for extension to a niche in the grand philosophical, poetical, and perchance in part heretical liturgy, now compiling by my friend Homo Humanus for the use of a certain snug congregation of utopian Rabelaisian Christians, no matter where assembled. The form then of the benediction before eating has its beauty at a poor man's table, or at the simple and unprovocative repasts of children. It is here that the grace becomes exceedingly graceful. The indigent man, who hardly knows whether he shall have a meal the next day or not, sits down to his fare with a present sense of the blessing, which can be but feebly acted by the rich into his minds the conception of wanting a dinner, could never, but by some extreme theory, have entered. The proper end of food, the animal sustenance, is barely contemplated by them. The poor man's bread is his daily bread, literally his bread for the day. Their courses are perennial. Again, the plainest diet seems the fittest to be preceded by the grace. That which is least stimulative to appetite leaves the mind most free for foreign considerations. A man may feel thankful, heartily thankful, over a dish of plain mutton with turnips, and have leisure to reflect upon the ordinance and institution of eating, when he shall confess a perturbation of mind, inconsistent with the purposes of the grace, at the presence of venison or turtle, when I have sate, a rarest hospice, at rich men's tables, with the savory soup and messes steaming up the nostrils, and moistening the lips of the guests with desire and a distracted choice, I have felt the introduction of that ceremony to be unseasonable, with a ravenous orgasm upon you. It seems impertinent to interpose a religious sentiment. It is a confusion of purpose to mutter out praises from a mouth that waters. The heats of epicurism put out the gentle flame of devotion. The incense which rises round is pagan, and the belly god intercepts it for his own. The very excess of the provision beyond the needs takes away all sense of proportion between the end and means. The giver is veiled by his gifts. You are startled at the injustice of returning thanks. For what? For having too much? while so many starve. It is the praise the gods amiss. I have observed this awkwardness, felt, scarce consciously, perhaps, by the good man who says the grace. I have seen it in clergymen and others, a sort of shame, 
a sense of the co-presence of circumstances which unhallowed the blessing. After a devotional tone put on for a few seconds, how rapidly the speaker will fall into his common voice, helping himself or his neighbor, as if to get rid of some uneasy sensation of hypocrisy. Not that the good man was a hypocrite, or was not most conscientious in the discharge of the duty, but he felt in his inmost mind the incompatibility of the scene and the viands before him with the exercise of a calm and rational gratitude. I hear somebody exclaim, Would you have Christians sit down at table like hogs to their troughs without remembering the giver? No, I would have them sit down as Christians, remembering the giver, and less like hogs. Or if their appetites must run riot, and they must pamper themselves with delicacies for which East and West are ransacked, I would have them postpone their benediction to a fitter season when appetite is laid. When the still small voice can be heard, and the reason of the grace returns, with temperate diet and restricted dishes, gluttony and surfeiting are no proper occasions for thanksgiving. When Yeshurun waxed fat, we read that he kicked. Virgil knew the harpy nature better, when he put into the mouth of Kalasno anything but a blessing. We may be gratefully sensible of the deliciousness of some kinds of food beyond others, though that is a meaner and inferior gratitude. But the proper object of the grace is sustenance, not relishes, daily bread, not delicacies, the means of life and not the means of pampering the carcass. With what frame or composure, I wonder, can a city chaplain pronounce his benediction at some great hall feast, when he knows that his last concluding pious word, and that in all probability, the sacred name which he preaches, is but the signal for so many impatient harpies to commence their foul orgies, with as little sense of true thankfulness, which is temperance, as those Virgilian vow. It is well, if the good man himself does not feel his devotions a little clouded, those foggy sensual steams mingling with and polluting the pure altar sacrifice. The severe satire upon full tables and surfeits is the banquet which Satan and the paradise regain provides for a temptation in the wilderness. A table richly spread in regal mode, dishes piled in meats of noble sort, and savor beasts of chase or fowl of game, and pastry built or from the spit or boiled, gris amber steamed all fish from sea or shore, fresh at a purling brook for which was drained, Pontus and Lucrine Bay and Africa coast. The tempter, I warrant you, thought these cates would go down without the recommendatory preface of a benediction. They are like to be short graces where the devil plays the host. I am afraid the poet wants his usual decorum in this place. Was he thinking of the old Roman luxury, or of a gaudy day at Cambridge? This was a temptation fitter for a heliogabalus. The whole banquet is too civic and culinary, and the accompaniments altogether a profanation of that deep, abstracted holy scene. The mighty artillery of sauces which the cook fiend conjures up is out of proportion to the simple wants and plain hunger of the guest. He that disturbed him in his dreams, from his dreams, might have been taught better. To the temperate fantasies of the famished son of God, what sort of feasts presented themselves? He dreamed indeed, as appetite is wont to dream, of meats and drinks, nature's refreshment sweet. But what meats? Him thought he by the brook of Cherith stood, and saw the ravens with their horny beaks, food to leisure bringing, e'en and morn. Though ravenous, taught to abstain from what they brought, he saw the prophet also how he fled, and to the desert and how there he slept, under a juniper and how awaked, he found his supper on the coals prepared, and by the angel was bid rise and eat, and ate the second time after repose, the strength whereof sufficed him forty days. Sometimes that with Elijah he partook, or as a guest with Daniel at his pulse. Nothing in Milton is finelier fancied 
than these temperate dreams of the divine hunger I... To which of these two visionary banquets, thank you, would the introduction of what is called the grace have been most fitting and pertinent? Theoretically, I am no enemy to graces, but practically I own that, before me especially, they seem to involve something awkward and unseasonable. Our appetites, of one or another kind, are excellent spurs to our reason, which might otherwise but feebly set about the great ends of preserving and continuing the species. They are fit blessings to be contemplated at a distance with a becoming gratitude. But the moment of appetite, the judicious reader will apprehend me, is perhaps the least fit season for that exercise. The Quakers who go about their business of every description with more calmness than we have more title to the use of these benedictory prefaces. I have always admired their silent grace, and the more because I have observed their applications to the meat and drink following to be less passionate and sensual than ours. They are neither gluttons nor wine-bibbers as a people. They eat as a horse bolts his chopped hay, with indifference, calmness, and cleanly circumstances. They neither grease nor slop themselves. When I see a citizen in his bib and tucker, I cannot imagine it a surplus. I am no Quaker in my food. I confess I am not indifferent to the kinds of it. Those unctuous morsels of deer's flesh were not made to be received with dispassionate services. I hate a man who swallows it, affecting not to know what he is eating. I suspect his taste in higher matters. I shrink instinctively from one who professes to like minced veal. There is a physiognomical character in the tastes for food. C holds that a man cannot have a pure mind who refuses apple dumplings. I am not certain, but he is right. With the decay of my first innocence, I confess a less and less relish daily for those innocuous cates. The whole vegetable tribe have lost their gust with me. Only I stick to asparagus, which still seems to inspire gentle thoughts. I am impatient and querulous under culinary disappointments, as to come home at the dinner hour, for instance, expecting some savory mess, and to find one quite tasteless and sabbatless. Butter ill-melted, that calmness of kitchen failures, puts me beside my tenor. The author of The Rambler used to make inarticulate animal noises over a favorite food. Was this the music quite proper to be preceded by the grace? Or would the pious man have done better to postpone his devotions to a season when the blessing plight be contemplated with less perturbation? I quarrel with no man's tastes, nor would set my thin face against those excellent things, in their way jollity and feasting. But as these exercises, however laudable, have little in them of grace or gracefulness, a man should be sure, before he ventures so to grace them, that while he is pretending his devotions otherwhere, he is not secretly kissing his hand to some great fish, his day gone, with a special consecration of no ark but the fat tureen before him. Graces are the sweet preluding strains to the banquets of angels and children, to the roots and severe repasts of the chartreuse, to the slender, but not slenderly acknowledged, perfection of the poor and humble man. But at the heaped-up boards of the pampered and luxurious, they become of dissonant mood, less timed and tuned to the occasion, methinks, than the noise of those better befitting organs would be, which children hear tales of at Hogg's Norden. We sit too long at our meals, or are too curious in the study of them, or too disordered in our application to them, or engrossed too great a portion of those good things, which should be common to our share, to be able with any grace to say grace, to be thankful for what we grasp exceeding our proportion, is to add hypocrisy to injustice. A lurking sense of this truth is what makes the performance of this duty so cold and spiritless a service at most tables. In houses where the grace is as indispensable as the napkin, who has not seen that never-settled question arise as to who shall say it, while well, the good man of the house and the visitor clergyman, or some other guest belike 
of next authority from years of gravity, shall be bandying about the office between them as a matter of compliment, each of them not unwilling to shift the awkward burthen of an equivocal duty from his own shoulders. I once drank tea in company with two Methodist divines of different persuasions, whom it was my fortune to introduce to each other for the first time that evening. Before the first cup was handed round, one of these reverend gentlemen put it to the other, with all due solemnity, whether he chose to say anything. It seems it is the custom with some sectaries to put up a short prayer before this meal also. His reverend brother did not at first quite apprehend him, but upon an explanation, but little less importance he made answer, that it was not a custom known in his church, in which courteous evasion, the other acquiescing for good manner's sake, or in compliance with a weak brother, the supplementary, or tea grace, was waived altogether, with what spirit might not Lucian have painted two priests of his religion, playing into each other's hands the compliment of performing or omitting a sacrifice, the hungry god meantime, doubtful of his incense, with expectant nostrils hovering over the two flamens, and as between two stools, going away in the end without his supper. A short form upon these occasions is felt to want reverence. A long one, I am afraid, cannot escape the charge of impertinence. I do not quite approve of the epigrammatic conciseness with which that equivocal wag, but my pleasant schoolfellow, C.V.L., or an importune for a grace, used to inquire, first slyly leering down the table, Is there no clergyman here? Significantly adding, Thank G. No, do I think our old form at school quite pertinent, where we were used to preface our bald bread and cheese suppers with a preamble, connecting with that humble blessing the recognition of benefits, the most awful and overwhelming to the imagination which religion has to offer. Non tunc illus erat locus. I remember we were put to it to reconcile the phrase good creatures, upon which the blessing rested, with the fair set before us, willfully understanding that expression in a low and animal sense till someone recalled the legend which told how in the golden days of Christ's the young hospitallers were wont to have smoking joints of roast meat upon their nightly boards, till some pious benefactor, commiserating the decencies rather than the palates of the children, commuted our flesh for garments, and gave us horesco reference, trousers instead of mutton. End of section 18 Recording by Arden